Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about the New England Vampire Panic. Please be advised that this episode contains mention and or discussion of disease, decomposition, corpse mutilation, and of course, cannibalism. Now let's get on to the show! Oh, oh. <laughs> amazing! <laughs> like, is that too much? No! Shall we begin our Halloween episode? It's just about Halloween here. Also, this episode is definitely coming out on Halloween because it's spooky and not because I had a breakdown. Our story today is actually going to begin in the early 1980s Hmm. in Connecticut, of all places. Because in the first half of the 1980s, Connecticut, Connecticut had a problem with a serial killer called Michael Ross who, between 1981 and 1984, murdered at least eight people, all female and ranging in age from 14 to 25. He was apprehended and convicted for four of the eight murders. He was sentenced to death on July 6, 1983. When a few children found some skulls in a loose gravel pit in 1990, the police assumed that these were just more victims for Michael Ross that they hadn't found yet. They were not. So in Griswold, Connecticut, these kids, as they were rolling around in one of these hills and, you know, rolling down hills as kids want to do, what came with them was two human skulls. And as you should, if you're a small child and you happen to find human remains, they told an adult who at first was like, nah, no, you didn't. And the one of the kids was like, here's a skull. (laughs) Here, here it is. Here it is. I can prove it. So they called the police and the police were like, ah, damn it. Here we have more serial killer victims. So they go to investigate. They tape everything off as a crime scene and they start digging into things. These are skeletons. So the state archaeologist is called a man named Bellantoni. What they discover pretty quickly, though, is that these are not more of Ross's victims because these skeletons are over a century old. They, upon further inspection, they figured that these bones were probably from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And they eventually discovered where exactly they had tumbled out of. And that was a small, unmarked family cemetery. The New England area is covered in tiny family cemeteries. It was a very popular area for people to live in the colonial Puritan period 18th, 19th century. So they believed that this was a skeleton from there. There was 29 graves in this cemetery. Two of them, however, really piqued Bell and Tony's interest. So 27 of them were buried in what the Smithsonian article on the New England Vampire Panic calls the thrifty Yankee style, which is essentially people being dressed very, very simply, if at all, no jewelry or anything in a very simple pine box under the ground. Pretty simple, no fancy adornments, not really any reason to rob graves unless you're looking for anatomy samples, as we've covered previously. Sounds decently sustainable. Right? However, two of the bodies were encased in bricks and stones, 
and when they got through that, the coffins within were painted red, unlike the rest. In particular, Bellantoni was interested in burial number four, which once they were able to pry off the stone, at first he could see like the feet as they were uncovering it, and they was like, okay, those are where they're supposed to be. And then they got the rest of the lid off, and the femurs were not where they were supposed to be, nor was the skull. This was not one of the skulls that the kids had found, uh, but they, what they did find is that the femurs and the skull had been laid atop of the rib cage in a Jolly Roger type motif with the femurs crossed and the skull over top, as well as the caved in top of the coffin with the initials JB55 inscribed in brass thumbtacks. Hmm. That is nonsensical, I feel like, without a whole lot of context. Yeah. Right? So how, what the hell happened to the skeleton from what they presume is the 1830s of this 50-ish year old man? Why is he in a special burial site and why is his skeleton being rearranged? Importantly, the archaeologist pretty quickly determined that the decapitation and other mutilation had occurred five years after death and everything had just been put back and resealed. Even more curious... Yes, the curious other box... The, curious, sir. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so the other box had the initials NB13 on it, and it's not noted anywhere that I've seen whether the skeleton was rearranged, um, but I'm presuming not because he was also reburied properly versus JB55 is still being studied and examined. Also trying to contact the descendants if they can find any. So Bellantoni's like, why the fuck is this skeleton so deliberately scrambled and in the midst of investigating one of his colleagues asks if he had heard about the 1850s jewett city vampires i have a question is the skeleton or was the skeleton all from the same person yes okay yeah I just a good a good point of clarification to make mm -hmm. sure that it is all one body we're dealing with bones you know shit gets mixed up they really, they really can. And sometimes mm -hmm. you find skulls that have just come loose and are down in a gravel pit with some children. <laughs> <laughs> so worth asking and making sure those matches are made correctly. So we're actually not going to talk about the Jewett City vampires, but we are going to talk briefly about Sarah Tillinghast. And this is jumping back uh, close to 200 years to the very end of the 18th century, 1799 in the small town of Exeter in Rhode Island. Studley Tillinghast, who was a father of 14 and a farmer with a very large orchard, wakes up from a dream in which half of his orchard turns black and dies. He did not understand that this was potentially a prophetic type dream, or maybe that was just the way he would read it later. But shortly after that, one of his daughters, Sarah Tillinghast, fell ill with consumption and died, as one does when they get consumption. Shortly after her burial, another one of her sisters fell ill, and unlike Sarah, reported that she was being visited by her dead sister every night, who was sitting on various parts of her body and causing her, like, excruciating pain and making her unable to move. Shortly after that, she also died. When Stutley's wife and his son also began to report visitations from Sarah in the night and started taking ill, he kind of panicked. Because suddenly half of his 14 children were at risk of dying. And so not being able to do anything to stop them from dying of consumption, which is a terrible wasting disease that makes it look like somebody's being drained of all of their life force, 
he did the unthinkable, which was to disinter his dead children so far to look for the source of the curse. Of the two children that had died, Sarah still appeared relatively fresh, suspiciously fresh. The one that died first. The one that died first, yeah. So when they opened the coffin, she had, her eyes were open, her hair and nails seemed to have grown, and there was, like, fresh blood in her heart still. She she appeared to still be quite supple, bouncy, and like she'd had a full meal. (laughs) Oh my god. Mm. Yes. Bouncy and supple. He, and the other child had started to show signs of regular decomposition. So it was like, all right, problem child is Sarah, apparently. And so what's a man to do? He cut out her heart and burned it upon a stone to ashes before returning Sarah to her grave. His wife did recover, but his son unfortunately did not and died, totaling four of his 14 children's dead from consumption. Something that's important to note here is that Stutley Tillinghast was potentially acting on a variety of factors, but there are various reports that come from a complaint issued in a newspaper in the New England area around a quack doctor, a foreigner, who was recommending for families to dig up their dead and to burn and or consume the heart of the like contagion or the contagious person or offending corpse in order to cure consumption to stop it from destroying the rest of the family. So this was something that was like in the zeitgeist, but it's unclear whether or not this directly influenced Stutley's decision or if it was one of the other myriad effects. What was what is it with like the 19th century and people just being like, you know what this needs? Some cannibalism. <laughs> like, just some light interfamilial this... cannibalism as medicine. Yeah, you, know, you know what consumption needs? We need some uh, some human flesh to to cure this. Surely that will cure it. Yeah. Right? And a, a lot of times it wasn't necessarily consumption of the remains, but the inhaling of the smoke while burning the remains. Because mm-hmm. what you want is the is the is fire smoke from a corpse in your tuberculosis ridden lungs. Mm-hmm. Surely that's Obviously. gonna help. 19th century medicine. So with that being said, it's worth talking about what the situation in New England was like in the 19th century. So no- so the New England area comprises of a variety of states, including Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont. It was in the 19th century. New England was not full of Puritans, unlike the rest of the United States. Rhode Island specifically was something of a haven for religious dissenters and heathenist types. So there actually wasn't a ton of church going at this time in New England, particularly in the small rural towns. It was a period of time of incredible advancement in medicine, in industrialization, electricity was really taken off, like germ theory was like on the up and up. But in very small rural farming communities, that news was very slow to penetrate. It was also during this century that the American Civil War and kind of the advent and spread of embalming became popular. And also, tuberculosis was having its fucking day in the sun. During this century, it was the leading cause of death and accounted for about one in four deaths. Holy. So by this century, doctors had been able to identify consumption as what it was. It's not like they could really do anything about it. We, of course, know that consumption, as it was called, is actually tuberculosis. And it is an infectious bacterial disease that generally affects the lungs, and it comes in two typical types, latent and active. Current estimates is that one in every four people on the planet right now have the TB virus, TB, but like 99% is latent. So you don't, you're asymptomatic and you're non-infectious. The active type is when you are both infectious and symptomatic. And of that, there tends to be two types, 
very drawn out tuberculosis where you can be sick for a long period of time and what they call galloping consumption, which is where it onsets very fast and just sucks you dry and kills you very quickly. <laughs> Symptoms of TB include, of course, coughing, chest pain, bringing up either blood or mucus or both while coughing, fevers, night sweats, loss of appetite, fatigue, chills, the whole kind of gambit of shit that you don't want to do when, nobody do when no doctor can help you. Sucks you dry like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the reason it was called consumption is it looked like you were being consumed somehow because you would waste away, you would lose color and vitality and grow very thin and very pale and gaunt and yeah, wasting away. There's a number of other wasting diseases such as HIV AIDS, which would also count as a wasting disease prior to antiretrovirals being in play to really take down that. Mm -hmm. They did not have those in, this, in the 17 and 1800s. And it was still kind of a mysterious and horrid way to die in the 19th century because you also weren't totally sure where it was coming from because someone can go from being having a latent case of TB to it becoming active. I don't know exactly what the triggers for that are, and it seems to happen very rarely. In terms of why they would come to vampire, which importantly, New Englanders did not use the term vampire. It was used in press about New England and about these exhumations sort of thing, but New Englanders themselves didn't call it that. They had a variety of superstitions to do with various beliefs, um, but it's generally believed that the idea of vampires as this kind of life-draining corpse of someone that you cared about generally comes from Slavic and German immigrants and some of the folklore that exists in a lot of parts of Europe. Europeans later were very quick to be like, this is a particularly American problem, but Europe has had quite a number of vampire panics prior to this, going back to like the 12th century. So look is who's that, talking. Is that not where uh, Transylvania is located? Yes, exactly. It's Romania, I believe. Yeah. Tuberculosis rampant through this time. And it was also known to take out like entire families because it would just jump from person to person, right? If you have someone who's taking care of somebody who has an extremely contagious bacterial disease and they're coughing all the time, there's a good chance you're going to pick it up. And then whoever's taking care of you then picks it up and so on and so forth. Bedrooms, like personal bedrooms, if you, yeah. you know, weren't uh, upper class, also weren't really a thing. Everyone kind of lived together in one room. Yeah, exactly. So and these were, didn't help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because these were very rural places as well, there was a little bit of resistance to the incoming, um, like the newfangled ideas of the 19th century, because these were very self-reliant, tight-knit communities, f small farming towns in the middle of nowhere, right? They're not connected by rail. They don't have electricity. They're also missionaries keep coming in to try and save them because there's so few churchgoers in the area. I think the report is that only like 10% of New Englanders went to church regularly, <laughs> which is very low for the time period. So yeah, vampirism coming in kind of as a mechanic of folklore is really important. And it's different from how vampires function nowadays, which is as metaphor. So that's an important distinction. We'll talk about how that a creature of folklore kind of dies off and it becomes this thing of metaphor and fiction instead. But creatures of folklore serve a lot of really important functions in a community. They're unifying. They are a way of exerting control and understanding upon a thing that you ju just cannot get a grasp of, but also cannot stop and cannot fight. That's killing people that you love one by one, slowly and painfully, no matter what you do. So it's the belief in vampirism is almost an extension of that fear and also a way of looking out for 
each other during a major death event, especially one that goes on for like a hundred years. So you might be wondering, how do you identify a vampire? You've got a family that's dying. How do you identify which one of the early deaths was a vampire? Usually it's the first one, but there are a couple of signs to look out for. So one of the major things is the visitations. These almost sound like sleep paralysis like ideas, but also the fact that they're suffering from fevers and fatigue. And there's this idea of visitations, I think probably contributes to the idea of whether it's in like a half awake state when you're extremely feverish and you're like, oh fuck, I'm thinking about a family member who just recently died the same way and am I gonna die that way? And then you think that they've come to you and it's painful because grief can be quite physically painful, especially if you are extremely ill. What's to say that it's that or maybe it's ghosts? Who knows? So that was one of the early signs is who, who's visiting you? Who seems sus? But also when you go through and you disinter all of the family members who've died, the things you're looking for are evidence of a full stomach, fresh skin, grown hair and nails, a red or bloodied mouth, and either a heart or liver full of blood. You find that, ta-da, you found your vampire. Now what the fuck do you do? So just to be clear, yeah. the, the story that you told us about, I can't remember their last name, but Sarah was the um, yeah, first one to pass family. away. The father believes she was a vampire and that's why he cut out her heart. Is yes, because at? her... Yeah, because her corpse was quite fresh still. It mm-hmm. had the appearance of something that had been feeding. Okay. A big part of it is timing, because there are temperatures at which you can keep a body quite fresh for a long time. Yes. So what time of year that person died and or was buried in is really important for how fast they decompose. There's also the thing of the idea of a full stomach, right? The, the distended stomach that you see in early states of decomposition is actually the result of bacterial gas buildup. And it's not because they've just had a good meal. It's because the bacteria are making a meal of them. I was going to say, the bacteria are having a meal. <laughs> exactly. Um, the redder bloodied mouth, the idea that like you open it and it looks like they've had a meal and it's on their face. That's actually liquefied internal organs being purged out of the body. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I know. Kind of gross. But it is, a, it is a thing that happens during decomposition is the purge essentially just leaks out of any open orifice. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that probably makes it worse Um, Mm, can be gross orifice what a word and of course things like the idea that your hair or your nails has grown is actually just the skin pulling back and revealing Mm. more of that like that structure right because nails are technically dead your hair is technically dead it's an excretion and your skin just pulls back and that shit's already there it's just exposing more of it so it looks like it's grown but it hasn't actually the heart full of blood again that has to do with the like timing of the death and whether it's been long enough for there to be like purge and liquefaction <laughs> liquefying of organs or if that's still intact and the blood is still decomposing in there the fresh skin thing somehow this is grosser than purge but corpses suffer from what is called slippage quite often, where the top layer of the skin decomposes and slips off, and underneath is like a very pink, new looking layer of skin. Like sheddings? Yeah, essentially. That's interesting. I know that's why you're not supposed to, if you get a burn, uh, especially like an oil burn, you're not supposed to use cold water because you can kind of slough off your skin, basically, like depending on how badly you burn yourself. Mm. Fun fact. Fun safety facts yeah. with mortals. Yeah. Uh, don't use water uh, if you burn yourself really bad with oil. Yeah. Oil and water, they don't mix. It just spreads it around. 
Don't. Do but that. you don't throw water on an oil fire either. Oh my god! Uh, don't ever do that. It will uh, explode. <laughs> I must say, all of this seems like um, the belief that it is vampires seems to be caused by a lack of familiarity and understanding with the process of processes of decomposition. Yes. Similar that to is... the uh, the taphophobia and buried yeah. alive stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've kind of talked about when we did like our death in animals episode, right? That it doesn't seem like animals can accurately perceive which animals are alive and dead before decomp starts. And I think humans also fall into that category of not necessarily being able to pick the difference. And I think there's something of an uncanny valley as well when you're dealing with a corpse, especially of someone that you know, somebody who you are intimately familiar with. Because it, an animated person is very different from a de-animated person, right? Your TV when it's on looks very different from when it's off. Mm-hmm. We've also spoken about like cultural differences in what is perceived yeah. as dead as well. So yes. some cultures around the world see that, you know, someone in a vegetative state is dead. They will begin yeah. funerary rites or <clears throat> they will begin funerary rites or um, so yeah. I think in a to kind of extend that to the animal kingdom as well. Like it's kind of yeah. a cultural thing as well, as well as a biological, yeah. which is really cool. That kind of overlap of cultural anthropology and biological anthropology so lots of causes as to what looks like a vampire how do you deal with a quote-unquote vampire once you found one some people particularly in i think it's rhode island might be particularly in Connecticut, particularly in one of the states that's part of new england they would simply flip the corpse over and then reseal it like a vampire couldn't figure out how to reorient itself i can't get out <laughs> i can't get out i'm just going to the center of the earth now. Hope there's blood there. Like, <laughs> it's fine. It seems like the least invasive of them. There is, of course, situations like Sarah Tillinghast in which the heart is removed and or the liver is removed and either burned or staked or otherwise destroyed. Um, again, to stop the vampire from like being able to reanimate and move. And then sometimes, such as in the case of JB55, it's assumed that what the situation was is that he was the first one to die. And so it was probably him. But by the time they disinterred his body, there wasn't enough organ left to destroy. So instead, they just rearranged the body, which I think is the hardest way to try and get out of a, a box if you're a vampire and you're, both your head and your femurs are on your chest. This is true. From the understanding that JB55 was rearranged five years after death is that five years later they were like all right too many of these people have died we gotta deal with the vampire it's in going back and rearranging the body so the vampire can't get out doesn't matter that he doesn't have a stomach to put blood in anymore now he doesn't have femurs where they're supposed to be he can't walk aren't vampires supposed to like float through the sky though right there's a lot of mythos turn into a bat yeah we'll get to dracula don't you worry we'll get there oh yeah <laughs> As much as it might seem kind of anachronistic and silly to be like, it's vampires. When you imagine yourself in their situations in which you don't know what's causing it, it's going from one family member to another. So it's a lot of people that you care about very much so and are trying to take care of and they all keep dying one by one, no matter what you do, no matter what anybody does, that you are trying to find a reason. What is causing it? Something to blame. Something has to be going on because it's too cruel for it to just be 
happening. There's a, there's a push of like desperation in it as well. And with this folklore creature that uh, people like Michael E. Bell, who is like the premier expert on the New England vampire panic surmises is that the vampire myth also came from a lot of places at a lot of times because it was the kind of figure that arose from places dealing with consumption over time. Uh, tuberculosis has been present for, as far as we know, at least 9,000 years in wow. humans. Yeah, it's been, around, it's been around for a long time. Probably why yeah. you said 99% of the population has some form of it latent or active. So I think when I was looking at the stats, like less than 10 people in Canada and the United States die of tuberculosis every year. Of course, it's different in places that don't have quite as robust or available healthcare systems and access to antibiotics. So we're going to go then to the most famous New England vampire, who is Mercy Lena Brown. Have either of you heard of Mercy Brown before? Um, the name sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you any details. Fair enough. She's also referenced uh, by name in Lovecraft's The Shunned House. Um, I haven't actually read it. Mercy Lena Brown is largely considered to be the last vampiric exhumation in New England. So this also took place in Exeter, Rhode Island. So Exeter just popping off with little vampire graves all over the place. So the Brown family initially lost their mother, Mary Eliza. And only a few years later, Mary Olive, one of the daughters, died. And she was only 20 at the time. They died in 82 and 83, respect. Both from consumption, obviously. 1882 is ironically the year that the tuberculosis-causing bacteria was discovered. Even though effective treatments of any kind would not be available until the 1940s. (laughs) Shortly after those two deaths, Edwin Brown, so the son and the brother also began to develop consumption, though it wasn't quite as fast-paced as his mother or sister had been, and he actually was sent away to Colorado to get some fresh air and rest and hope that that would ease his symptoms. He trucked on for quite a bit of time, but in 1892, Mercy, who was called Lena by her family, suddenly developed galloping consumption. Edwin came back from Colorado about the same time, and though he had been in remission, almost immediately started to get worse again. Lena died in January of 1892. George Brown, the patriarch of the family, having now lost the third family member to consumption and looking at losing his son as well, does not believe in all this vampire nonsense. He's having none of it. He thinks it's superstitious, hokey pokey, doesn't want anything to do with it. His neighbors, however, are like, what if there's a way to save your son? You could just, you could just, just dig up your family. That's fine. And then we'll know, and maybe your son will live. And they pester and pester and pester and pester and pester and pester this man until he eventually agrees to have his wife and two daughters exhumed, but he insists that a medical examiner is there and that he does not have to be. Because I think as as we can all imagine, having to be there to dig up and potentially disturb the graves of our immediate family members is pretty distressing. Especially when you're only doing it because your neighbors won't fucking leave you alone. Well, yeah, it's like you're trying to... If he, if he says no, you can't prove that it wouldn't have worked, right? Right? And that's the thing, too, is it's such a community thing of being like, we need to stop this because once you're all dead, the vampire's gonna come for the rest of us. Like, And also everybody feeling like this is the only thing we can do. And if mm-hmm. it, you know, we can't leave any stone unturned. Yeah, it's trying to have a measure of control over the situation that is, well, at the time, because of medicine, not controllable. Exactly. So... On the morning of March 17th, 1892, 
A group of men, the medical examiner Dr. Metcalf and a couple of press members, were there to witness the exhumation of the three women of the Brown family. Mary Eliza and Mary Olive were both quite decomposed. Mercy Lena Brown, however, was fresh. So sorry. Like she had just died. When did you say that they were doing this digging up of? March 17th. Of 1892. She died in January. Okay. Well, that tracks. It's cold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they were like, ah, shit, this is a vampire. It's a vampire. It's a vampire. Bingo, we got one. And so they removed her heart, burned it, and fed the ashes to Edwin, and then reburied her. This, of course, did not work because it's just human remains of not a vampire, and Edwin died two months later. George Brown may have made the right decision because he didn't seem to be super susceptible to tuberculosis and lived until 1922. So he had another 30 years of living next to these people. What was important about Lena's exhumation is that of the press members that was there, one was a reporter for the Providence Journal, which was a pretty big journal at the time. And the article drew the interest of an anthropologist named George Stetson. Stetson goes into New England to investigate and probe this situation that a lot of people who were traveling through and stuff from larger areas kind of viewed as being this very backwater, superstitious, ludicrous, and a wildly anachronistic thing that these, like, ho-dunk rural people were doing, disinterring people and eating their hearts. Like, what is this? Again, huge area of enlightenment. Henry Ford built his first car in 1892. This is well into the Victorian period. Stetson's research and report that was then published uh, went surprisingly viral. This shit got picked up everywhere. There was articles being printed all over the world with speculation and theories about why these people believed in vampires and why they were digging up and desecrating their dead. A clipping from this period of time found its way into the research folders of a aspiring novelist who was traveling through the United States with his theater company at the time. Any guesses as to who this aspiring novelist was? Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker. Uh, beep, beep, beep. I'm not <laughs> yeah. good with eras. I was going to guess Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> I mean, Edgar Allan Poe was also directly influenced by this, and there's actually a lot of references to Mercy Brown in vampire fiction. But yeah, it was found amongst the papers and the research of Bram Stoker. He was at the time working on Dracula. The clipping he had was actually from 1896 and he published Dracula in 1897. So there's lots of people who are like, ah, oh, it's a coincidence. And a lot of people who see the name Lucy for one of the characters in Dracula, which I don't know if either of you have read this, but she's kind of an innocent bystander, this very sweet, innocent woman who begins wasting away inexplicably dies and is comes back as a vampire. Her exhumation is overseen by a doctor, Dr. Abraham von Hilsing, and it very much mirrors the story of Mercy Brown. So a lot of people are like, hmm, hmm. And also I'm like, you can revise a novel pretty quickly uh, if that is the main thing you are doing and it's 95% of the way done. But he also had over a hundred pages of research on vampires at the time. So hard to say, but perhaps, that's considered... So, sorry, perhaps he just... Uh said, hey, this is in the zeitgeist right now. I'm going to rename her. Yeah, exactly. He could have just renamed a character that was already there. Like, control F on the typewriter. 
<laughs> as if that existed back then. As if. Uh, yeah, I mean, electricity was a thing. So after this, the information about like bacterial disease and germ theory and stuff was really starting to make its way into these rural communities. And with more people kind of knowing about it and kind of going in there, the spread of the railway, and like mass exoduses from these rural communities into urban centers, the vampire of folklore kind of just quietly perished among just the changing knowledge of science, medicine, and vampires. Killing a vampire was no longer medicine, because that's very much what it had been, which kind of kills, yeah, the vampire panic. So the site that we initially talked about in Griswold, Connecticut, was later identified as the Walton family graveyard, and the two red coffins are believed to be John Barber, who was 55, and his son Nathan Barber, who was only 13. John Barber is confirmed to have died of quite severe tuberculosis. It, like, ate some of his rib cage. Oh my god. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Between the late 1700s and the late 1800s, there are at least 100 documented cases of vampiric exhumations in the New England area. Of course, there's probably a fuck ton that we haven't found yet because there's all these tiny, unmarked family cemeteries. There's like a ridiculous density of cemeteries to people in New England at this time. And most of them have been located just by following down paper trails, going through archives, doing the nitty gritty of historian work, right? Modern vampires don't kind of hold the same place in folklore as this kind of catch-all, as this reason behind a thing that is inexplicable. And it also doesn't quite have the same mythos that lends to the uncanny valleyness of dealing with a corpse that is only slightly not the person that you do, and also in the day of embalming, where you have a body that is literally made resistant to death, which is something that we see very much in modern takes on vampires, right? Is that they become preternaturally beautiful and resistant to death and very pale and preserved. So whether or not that's a connection people were making, or if that was something that was just, I have both of these ideas and they kind of mesh, who's to say? I'm not an expert in this. Again, assuming I'm telling you this at like a fun Halloween party. And there's an interesting idea in the mythos around vampires that the um, expert on the ologies episode I was listening to today was talking about is that there's this idea of resurrection in vampires that is kind of a perversion. So it's either the body's own soul being called back um, either because that was the person who in life tended to take too much from other people, whether it was booze or um, tobacco, sleeping around, like somebody who was of a more like quote unquote greedy disposition, more likely to come back and then be a vampire who then in death is an exaggeration of that greed or that when that person dies, they are then replaced by a demon, which is also part of the mythos that explains like traumatic brain injuries and stuff and being resuscitated and people not being quite exactly the same is that there's the idea that it's they've been replaced, like the soul has been exchanged. So I think that kind of feeds into the uncanniness of bodies that it's like, this is the body of the person I knew, but it doesn't look like them, but it does, but it doesn't. And all that kind of strange space. Mm. I have I have a couple thoughts if you've sort of reached the end of the, uh, that the narrative is, here. I have hit the end of my script other than being like, people are afraid of death and decay. <laughs> I wonder, so my first thought is, I wonder what the correlation is between stories and folklore of vampires and being cold places, places that bodies ah. could be preserved by just yeah nature and the weather um, if they die in the winter and so on. Yeah. 
because that's why Barcy Brown was so fresh is because in January, New England has notoriously harsh winters. Like the eastern seaboard, New York, that whole fucking area gets ridiculous winters. At least from what I understand. I have not actually ever been that far east without just flying directly over it to another continent. But like, Mercy Brown was kept in a keep, essentially cold storage for a body, which in the winter is gonna be about the same temperature as like a mortuary fridge. I don't think that's what they're called, but the fridge is for bodies. You know what I mean. Yeah. That's perfect for preserving a corpse. So yeah, I wonder, there could be outliers... As like yeah. places that are warm weather that you think of, and there's vampires in folklore. But I yeah. would I would wager, and I'd I'd at least start off with an exploration of folklore and vampires with a map and try to try to chart yeah. it and see how how that goes. Because um, I would guess that there would be a correlation, but I could be wrong. Um, that's not to say there's not vampires in other more uh, balmy weather folklores. All this to say a, is there's a, a there's a lot of um, undead in folklore that has a lot to do with how the body decays or doesn't decay. Yes. So um, perhaps in the future uh, Halloween episodes, as we go on and on, we can interrogate some more of those things. Mummies, yeah. zombies. I would love to do something about witches. Witches are tend Ooh. to be alive or undead. Yes, that actually it shares some of the same linguistic origins as the word like vampire Mm. as it appears also i learned today that the first written account of a vampire in fiction was actually you know how mary shelley and her husband and byron and a bunch of other like young poet writer types were all like getting together on their grand tour and had a like short story writing competition and that's how frankenstein was born I've heard this, yes. During that, I think it was Byron wrote this thing that was like vaguely vampirish and was like, ah, this is trash. I'm never going to publish it. And the doctor that he had brought along on this trip that he'd been treating like shit this whole time who hated Byron essentially took that, improved it, and made the vampire in it, in this short story, a caricature of Byron (laughs) and published that. And it went viral and people were like, wow, Byron's such a good writer because they attributed it to Byron instead of this guy who was like, no, I hate Byron. This is making fun of Byron. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. I fucking I really love I really love how you keep saying that these things went viral in the 19th century. I, like, I know yeah. I know it's like a very it's a very modern phrase but just to hear that in that something went viral in the 19th funny to me. <laughs> All of the yeah. ladies were talking about it in their drawing room on Facebook. <laughs> they went to the place where the book is just full of faces. It's incredible. <laughs> It's fascinating. Vampires have such extensive lore, and there's, in fiction now, as a metaphor for various things, because it's been used in a bunch of different ways, as metaphors for our fear of death, or a conquering of death, or that which is consumptive and parasitic, or, like, how undeath is a violation of nature, and all these sorts of things, all these versions of vampires... There's something of, like, a fictional arms race as well. So when you go from something like Nosferatu, which I learned was a knockoff of Dracula because they could, the Germans couldn't afford to pay the copyright 
for it, so they tried to change just enough to get away with it. Oh and my then God. Stoker's wife, who was not well off at the time, was like, no, fuck you. You're either going to pay for it or you're going to wreck all of them. And they had to both pay for it and destroy every single copy of Nosferatu. There were a couple left in film archives, and that's why we still have copies of it. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't know that until today either. I'm like, holy shit, there's so much vampire stuff out there. Which, if you are interested in more stuff about vampires, the Ologies episode that came out today, I'm not telling you what day it is, but you'll look at it and be like, oh, wow, they recorded this really late. Uh, <laughs> the Vampireology episode that came out on Ologies is very good. And you can also look up the work of Michael E. Bell, who is the expert on Rhode Island uh, vampire panics. He's written several books about it, both very good resources. And also, it's Halloween. There's so many vampire movies out there, and I believe there there will be some sort of anniversary thing about Nosferatu this Halloween this year of 2022. But yeah, as they were doing versions of vampires throughout history, when you went from like Nosferatu, who is this very unhuman kind of figure, to like the Christopher Lee version that you get in the Dracula, where he suddenly becomes very like handsome and put together and more aristocratic and they just get they get faster and they get stronger and they get more beautiful and they get more vicious and they have more powers and yada yada. There's kind of this escalation of this metaphor of fear because we adjust, right? So it's really interesting how it's changed from a folklore mechanic within a community as a means of understanding the world into a metaphor as a way of interpreting the world. I do really love that aspect of it, the interrogating the, the panic of vampires and need, the need to identify a cause for this terrible thing that's happening that you can't really control and, um, like, put a face to it, put uh, an evil or an other to it as an mm-hmm. understanding of, of death. And yet you get so many, I don't want to seem heartless, but you get so many cool stories out of it. <laughs> You do. It's like, it's people are dying, but it's, it is fascinating. And the thing too is, is like coming out of that period as well, there was a real introduction of like romanticism through fiction, which is part of why Dracula is the way that he is, which if you haven't read Dracula, it can be kind of dry, but it's actually a very good book. But Dracula goes from being this very like charming, excellent host to even though he's physically kind of both intimidating and charming, but also disgusting, is extremely persuasive. And he has... Fucking every single superpower every vampire has ever had. Turning into a bat. Mind control. Basically, the only thing you have to do is make sure that he doesn't have any of the, like, hallo- like his ground. So, like, it's a whole thing in, the- in Dracula where they're chasing down all these crates of earth that he's shipped out. Because he needs those to, like, have, like, an anchor into a place. Because he's trying to move to London in at the start of Dracula in order to have access to the new world. He wants to go to America. I have not read Dracula, so. I was going to say, it is a very good read, but uh, Mariah, you are forgetting or omitting one of the most infamous vampire side effects that, that Bram Stoker's Dracula does not have, and that is sparkling in the sunlight. Sparkles! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> when they take the preternatural to, like, We've doused this corpse in glitter! Like, Amazing. it's so beyond the uncanny into the absurd. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one other thought that I had. Um, yeah. I read last year, I believe, or maybe the year before, around Halloween, I read um, Salem's Lot by Stephen King. That's his name. Right? Oh, I haven't read that one. But <laughs> his name is Stephen King, right? I'm having It a, is Stephen King. That oh is a King God. book, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was having a moment. 
I don't remember where exactly the story takes place, but basically fall is here, the days are getting shorter, and this small town has like a scare of vampires. And part of the the thematic push of the book is like, the days are getting shorter and we're going to be trapped in this darkness and the vampires can move in the dark. So it's like very hopeless. And that's another reason why I was kind of thinking about vampires existing in lore in places that are colder because then you also get the the very short days in the winter and in in those months and it's kind of like a way of making sense of this fear that you have of the darkness and of death and of the cold and oh my gosh we exhumed this body and it's not decaying it all seems to fit together very well and having language to talk about a thing is really important. So being able to, like, name it so that everybody can identify it as a thing to, like, share in comfort and confront is so important, too, because we are very linguistic animals. And it's such a huge part of community. So that, yeah, that totally tracks of being like, all right, it's dark. People aren't decomposing, but everybody's dying. There's soon going to be more corpses than there are people alive. Ah. Yeah, basically. Uh, so... Some great book recommendations have come out of this episode. If you aren't sick of all our recommendations after last episode. <laughs> this is a, a, on topic and thematic. There's a lot of books, like, as That's you said. True. It's all vampires are in folklore, and folklore makes its way into uh, novels and literature. So there's plenty of examples out there. Happy Halloween, y'all. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Halloween. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortals podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Bow, 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 bow,